This is a preview edition of the Storymakers Institute. Become a paid subscriber to access the full episode. Just visit thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com forward slash subscribe. This is the Storymakers Institute with Joel Carnegie. This is your front row pass to the world's most intriguing storytellers, as powered by you. A quick reminder again to jump onto Apple Podcasts or Spotify to give the show a star rating and review. It only takes a minute and helps us enormously to reach more listeners. On Spotify, just tap the star rating. On Apple Podcasts, simply scroll down the show page, select a star rating and tap write a review. This week on the show, say hello to Ensa Mala, Cameroonian poet, writer, author of children's books and researcher and scholar who writes in English, French and Mbessa. A couple of years ago, he went to investigate the Congo Basin and those who write about it. It's often described as Earth's second lungs after the Amazon, scooping up the world's carbon emissions, including holding some 20 years' worth of US fossil fuel emissions. Unsurprisingly, though, it's a region that also faces huge issues arising from global climate change, logging, mining, poaching, urbanisation, and so on. Ensa ended up writing about this fascinating part of the world. What did he discover? And can literature save the Congo Basin? And why does this have ramifications for you? Globally, the Congo Basin is one of the most important pieces of the earth. Why? In terms of many things. One, in terms of climate change mitigation, the peatlands that were recently discovered or that were recently brought to international attention, I should say so, in the Congo Basin have the capacity to store up to about three years of global carbon emissions. Just peatlands, we are not calculating the, the carbon storage of the tree. So, so it is a carbon sink, which is so crucial for global climate mitigation. And also in terms of biodiversity, the Congo Basin has about 10% of global biodiversity. So, and then of course, we can't end it without talking about minerals because you might have heard that there is a, an ongoing, almost kind of like endless war in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. That war is a war over mineral resources and it's a war that is usually funded from outside. And so, and it's also a war about the paradox of the transition. Why do I say the paradox of the transition? Because we are so happy when we say, oh, electric cars are the solution. But where are we getting the batteries from? Or when we say, well, let's go digital. Where are we getting the batteries for the laptops from? So the cobalt is coming from the Congo. So the Congo is also very important in terms of mineral resources, including the controversial uh, crude oil, but also gold, diamond, cobalt, and you name the rest. And so that's why I wanted to focus on it in my research. So what you're saying is that it's an area of the world that is, in a way, being wedged by the past, present, and the future. Yes. So the Congo Basin has been for for years and years, starting with the the, 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 the onslaught of colonization and up to now in new colonization, the Congo Basin is a place of serious, conflicting global interest. And where do you personally arrive into this into this story? You've grown up in, in Cameroon, but how are you personally drawn into the Congo Basin as, as a story maker, as someone who uh, has spent many years investigating the, uh, the, the region and, and its place in global affairs? It's very rare to find uh, studies in, on the Congo Basin that come from a, uh, an environmental humanities perspective. 
And you know that the environmental humanities, including literature, are helpful in that they can unveil very uncomfortable things. Because the biologists and an ecologist will only go maybe and warn us that, well, this, this species is going extinct or is being threatened and so on and so forth. But I knew that from a literary interdisciplinary perspective that combines history, politics, ecology, the biology, and what, what all, all possible uh, contributions from different disciplines, we could be able to shine a light on the Congo Basin. And when I say shine a light, I mean it in different ways. Shine a light in bringing it to more global attention because one thing is that the Amazon has been overhyped. There is a lot of talk about the Amazon. Each time I go about make into conferences and I want to present about the Congo Basin, and I ask people, do you know about the Congo Basin? Very few people have heard about it. But almost everyone in the hall has heard about the Amazon. Because the Amazon has been brought to people not only by naturalists, naturalists or natural scientists, but also by people from the literary, historical, and also other humanities disciplines. And I noticed that this was not happening for the Congo Basin. Uh, so, to counter this kind of global and also local ignorance about the Congo Basin, because of course I cannot pretend there are people in the Congo Basin who don't even know that they're in the Congo Basin. There are some people who don't even know that they live in a place called the Congo Basin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's, those are the kinds of things that brought me into this, especially to, to shine this light, shine the light on maybe the, 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 the green atrocities, the shine a light on neo-colonial atrocities, but also shine a light on how literature and the environmental humanities can be able to not only unveil those uh, atrocities or malpractices, but also point us in new directions, in directions of hope, in directions where we are optimistic that the Congo Basin can be preserved for the betterment of its inhabitants, human and non-human, and the world at large. Mm. So set the scene uh, for me in terms of some of the stories, the global narratives that are told when it comes to the Congo Basin and your part of the world. So, so far, lots of the stories about the Congo Basin have been narratives driven by the media and they are often very negative narratives, of course, and that's very typical of how uh, non-African media represents Africa because Africa often comes across in most non-African media or, <clears throat> or let's say Western media as being the place of conflict, the place of hunger, uh, the, the place of poverty, which is only partly true because all these things are found everywhere in the world. And secondly, non-African media hardly ever says why Africa is poor or why Africa is hiding. Because when you say Africa is poor, you should also add that it is poor because it has been impoverished by colonial colonialism and neo-colonialism. And then you should also be able to add that the, the conflicts are not just because Africans hate themselves. People in the Congo Basin don't just, just hate themselves. They are fighting because they are manipulated from outside so that they fight and people grab resources. And so these have been the kinds of narratives that dominate across the globe when it comes to the Congo Basin. But I then thought that by doing my research on this, I could highlight other forms of stories, stories that show that the Congo Basin is not what is framed from outside, but what people from within live. And so it's a place of vibrancy, vibrancy of ecosystems made up of people and human beings and non-human beings that share those 
vital ecosystems together because of course you might also be aware that a lot of western channels i don't want to call any name but a lot of western channels are fond of showing paradisical Africa is where you see only giraffes, elephants, lions, tigers. To the extent that when you move around and when you come to like to Europe, the first thing somebody is asking you is about elephants. That's that's, that's crazy. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like saying all, all Australians are surfers, uh, you know, and we're always at the beach, you know. <laughs> I'm not a surfer. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think that. Uh, I wanted to do this work because this, there there are different narratives and we should bring them to light. And of course, and there are also damaging narratives like this one-sided narratives that continue to paint Africa in a negative image or that paint Africa in a negative image and dodge and escape from saying why it is negative. Because I, I find it completely manipulative, dishonest, that any media will say, well, there is war in the north, north eastern Congo, and they always say, well, it's Rwanda and Congo. It's not just about Rwanda and Congo. It's about where are those minerals going to? The minerals are not ending up in neither in Congo nor in Rwanda. Mm. And so the moment we point where those minerals are going to, then we know where the war is coming from. And, that's, and so we to go beyond this narrative, we must dig deeper into the root causes of issue. And literature has been very good in bringing out this alternative narratives that look far into the past, look deep into the present, but also far, far into the future. Mm. So a couple of years ago, you went to investigate the literature of the Congo Basin. What did you discover? Yes, I discovered lots of interesting things, uh, things that cannot be exhausted. Even I couldn't even exhaust them in my PhD thesis. (laughs) (laughs) You even wrote a PhD on it. There's still more. (laughs) I get created to have done that. But I do. I will try to talk about those that at least that I brought into the PhD. Uh, I looked at literature and I saw that literature could help us, for example, to dig into the deeper and root causes of issues like deforestation. Because if we are crying that the Congo Basin is going just like the Amazon or the forests of Southeast Asia around Mekong or even the tropical forests of uh, Australia, one thing is always about the causes and uh, literature. Especially literature around deforestation, theater, but also poetry helped me to understand that it's not always, it's not always about what we are being told by the media, because often the media says, well, there is population growth, and then that people are doing subsistence agriculture and the forest is disappearing, which is a lie. That's just part of the causes of the deforestation. And the real big causes are logging, commercial logging. And mineral uh, exploitation or mineral extraction, all of these things put together, also and also even infrastructural development, then we see a bigger picture. So literature was able to do so and also to shine a light on where capitalism gets into the mix, where capitalism gets into the mix while at the same time highlighting what we can learn from the sciences of the indigenous people. And then literature from the Congo Basin has also helped me to see, for example, or to highlight something that I, I, I find quite interesting, that many people, when they talk about youth global uh, climate activism or global youth climate activism, they always talk about Greta Thunberg from Sweden, but they're also young activists from Africa. But even beyond that, I was able to show from an analysis of literary texts from the basin that writers from the Congo basin are some of the first people to have kind of predicted 
the advent, the emergence of a youth movement because they had written stories that not only chronicled the activism of young people for climate and environment, but also stories. And I mean writers like Angrin Jombo from Congo, Brazil, writers like Ekpe Inyang from Cameroon. They had also written stories and also writers like um, Nadia Origo from Gabon. They had written stories that chronicle youth activism for biodiversity and climate, but also stories that inspire other youth, that are inspirational. And so I looked at this, but also looked at how human-animal relations function in the Congo Basin. But of course, I can't end it without saying another thing that literature helped to do. Literature helped me to unpack the myth of this African Eden. You know, because conservation in Africa is mostly centered around trying to preserve a colonially imagined garden of Eden in Africa, which I talked about a couple of minutes ago, like this pristine nature that has never had any human presence, which is a lie. And so I was able to to unpack that through literature to show how that is an extension of green colonialism and how that has an impact on on doing other ways of life, other economic systems that are not capitalist in nature, that are not exploitative, that are not extractivist, and therefore showing us alternatives to conservation, conservation that that is not only nature-centered, but is nature and human-centered at the same time, so that we can avoid the injustices of forcibly removing indigenous people from their homes in the name of conservation, for example. So this and many more are some of the issues that I was able to discover through literature uh, in the Congo Basin. If you were to place a new narrative on top of this this idea of Eden, what might that look like? I, I think I think the Congo Basin as a garden of Eden in itself and of itself is not completely a bad idea. But the issue is when we erase part of that garden. Let us imagine that it is still a garden, but we must insist that it is a garden full of people and biodiversity. And that the people constitute part of the biodiversity. Because what is bad, what is not good in the narrative that has been driven by Western media is the erasure of Africans from the scene, from the picture. Because whether you take the deep forest of the Congo Basin, there are indigenous people there with different names. Although some some Western anthropologists initially called them a name, uh, called them pygmies, which is a derogatory term anyway. But the, the indigenous people of the Congo Basin have different names. Most, the most known uh, group there are the, the Baka, the Baka uh, uh, ethnic, uh, uh, indigenous community, but we have others like the, the Batwa, etc. Etc. And what is important is to know that these people have been interacting with the forest of the Congo Basin for years with that number. And, that, and that's something that we should not take out of the picture. Because and then another thing, because once we start wiping Africans out of the narrative of any garden, the next thing is what has, what has come to be a kind of racial colonial construction of Africans as destroyers of their nature we should then warrant some external forces coming in as saviors to help Africa preserve that forest. And that's why a, 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 a tourist from Europe 
or North America will be given a license to shoot an animal in Zimbabwe or to shoot an animal in Congo or in Gabon. But if my neighbor goes in to shoot an animal there for survival, to eat, he will be called a poacher and the other will be called a, pol a, 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 a tourist. And these are things that grow out of the narratives that have been constructed about this kind of Eden. Because once we carefully take out Africans from the Eden, either we take them out physically or mentally, Mentally is when we, they are treated as the enemy, as poachers. Because once you start saying poachers, it's, it's a construction. It's a carefully const constructed term that applies only to natives, to indigenous and natives. Whereas other people can do any other thing with biodiversity. So once we start removing these things, we could still end up with the idea of an Eden. But this time around, an Eden that has everybody there but otherwise, then we, we, we throw out the whole Eden thing and we look at Africa as we look at other parts of the world on an equal footing. That's really fascinating and, uh, and, and, and almost sort of hilarious, you know, in a sort of sad way, the way in which you describe that back to me. But I wanted to come back to an idea that you mentioned earlier, which was around the discoveries that you made around the literature and the... Mm, the comparison between inspirational stories and stories of destruction, what do you think is more successful or what has been more successful um, in terms of delivering that message? Yeah, that one, um, you know, in, in, in my field of research, because, uh, yes, I do environmental humanities, but I come with a heavy literary and linguistic background, a literary, linguistic, and cultural background. And uh, one of the principal theories I use is eco-criticism. And so within eco-criticism, which is the study, to, to put it in a quite simple way, the study of the relationship between the climate issues, environmental and ecological issues on the one hand, and then art and culture, on the other hand. So, having said so, one of the issues or the debates that is going on, continues to go on within this field is whether should we use dystopias or utopias? Should we use uh, stories of destruction and despair or stories of hope in driving climate action? What do you think? Uh, yes, honestly, and, and this comes back to your question, and I think that both are helpful. I will explain why. I know that, yeah, there are some authors and scholars now who say, well, no, um, negative stories are, are driving people into inaction. But I think that people don't behave in the same way. Human beings are different. There, there are some human beings that we, will be moved by a negative story to do something. There are some people who will be moved, who, who out of their empathy and also their sympathy for maybe watching a film or reading a story, reading a short story or a novel or a poem or watching a play, in which someone suffers from the devastations of climate change or a community suffers or an animal suffers or a tree suffers and then that person decided, well, it's time for me to get up and do something. Of course, there's some people who work and watch that and just, well, and just get shot out and say, well, there is nothing I can do. That's true. And so that, which means that to different audiences, we can bring different stories or even to the same audiences, we can bring different kinds of stories knowing that in those audiences, some will receive them well and others might not because for some people they prefer to act on stories of hope they, they prefer to act on stories that are more inspirational that show that there is still something we can do uh, 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 and that shows that there is that shows us projections alternative futures uh, 
with desirable futures that we can construct together. And so those people will be good at working at uh, working towards that, especially people who have a kind of futurist mindset. But so in a nutshell for me, I think that both stories work because some people will act when they see that something is bad and they really feel bad about it, when their negative emotions are in action, and some people will act when their positive emotions are in action. Mm. You've previously described literature as having a kind of debatable power. Do you think that is because... That's it for this preview edition of the Storymakers Institute. Become a paid subscriber to access the full episode. Just visit the storymakersinstitute.substack.com forward slash subscribe.